Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what we have just read, which is the very word of God. We should ask him to teach us this morning. Pray with me, would you? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you have not left us alone to make sense out of life on our own but that you have spoken to us. You've spoken to us in your word, that you've spoken to us by Jesus. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, none of us walks in this room deserving to hear from you. And yet, we were reminded a few weeks ago that if we are in Christ, he is our high priest, which means that we can approach you boldly. We can approach the throne of grace of boldly, knowing that you will give us mercy and grace in our time of need. We need you. Teach us. Convict us. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... We all know the story, but what I would like to suggest to you is we really don't know this story very well at all. In fact, this story is one of those stories that we're so familiar with, and yet at the same time, it is, it is just clouded over with myth and tradition. What I want you to know is that this story is not a cozy picture book story that we have in our minds as we read this passage. This Story is not the story we have created for ourselves. The story of three mysterious but gentle kings bringing gifts to a baby who they find lying in a manger in a stable. That's not what this is about. The Magi who visited Jesus 
have often been described as kings, but they're not kings. Magi were magicians or astrologers or experts in interpreting dreams and signs and other strange occurrences. We often assumed that there were three magi, but we don't know that. Matthew doesn't tell us that there were three magi. He tells us that they brought three gifts, but we don't know that there were three magi. There could have been, but there could have been a whole bunch more. Matthew doesn't say anything about a manger or a stable, does he? It's, it's very probable that this visit didn't occur until maybe a year or as, as much as two years after Jesus was born. They're no longer, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are no longer in a stable. No doubt they've moved into a house in Bethlehem. Now, that aside, this is a really strange passage if you think about it. I mean, you've, you've got these magicians, these astrologers from a foreign land seeing a star in the sky and coming to Bethlehem to worship this king. It's kind of bizarre. And it raises the question, why would Matthew include this story in his gospel? And I want to suggest to you this morning there, that there are at least a couple of reasons. The first is that this story tells us something about God's agenda. Second, the story tells us something about the gospel of God. So what does this tell us about God's agenda? Well, think about it for a minute. Why do the Magi come looking for Jesus? Luke tells us in verse 2, right? They saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, while no one is exactly sure how to make sense of this star, we do know that the planets Jupiter and Saturn were in conjunction with each other three times in 7 BC. Jupiter was considered the royal or kingly planet, and Saturn was sometimes thought to represent the Jews. It very well could have been that the astrologers, these astrologers, saw Jupiter and Saturn dancing around in the sky, and they concluded that something very special, something very unique was about to take place. And it appears from verse 2 that they concluded that this something very special, this something very unique was the birth of a king, a king of the Jews. And so the Magi headed west to worship this newborn king. At first glance, it might sound like this was all the ma uh, due to the Magi's ingenuity, their, their wisdom, their, 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 their ability to think, to make sense of the stars. They, they were the ones who were studying the stars, right? They were the ones who set off for the West in search of this newborn king of the Jews. But I would remind you, of what King David said in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. What I would like to suggest to you this morning is that God was using 
the star to fulfill his promise that he made to Abram, who is later named Abraham, way back in Genesis 12. You might remember in in Genesis 12, or actually Genesis 11, Genesis 12, God calls Abram and his wife Sarai out of idolatry in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he, he makes him this amazing promise. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That last line, and in you all the families of the earth of the earth shall be blessed. God's fulfilling that in our story. What we see in the story of the Magi is that God is keeping his promise. He is faithful to his word. And God's intention is what? It's blessing. Blessing, not only to the Hebrews, but to all the families of the earth, folks. Blessing is a Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 word, which means blessing is the way we were created to be. And what we know is that blessing is the way that it's going to be. All to say, God is using this star to fulfill his promise. But more than that, God is using this star to call and to lead and to guide the Magi to his son. What you need to see here is that while the Magi do see the star in the sky, while the Magi do make this trek to Bethlehem, it is God who takes the initiative. As Jesus later says to his disciples, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. And God's agenda? What do the Magi say? Why do they make this trek? Again, verse 2. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. This is God's agenda, to create worshipers. Again, Jesus makes this explicit in his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus and this woman are talking about the temple and they're talking about religion and they're talking about water. And Jesus says to her, the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. God's agenda to create worshipers. But here's the thing you need to know. You you are a worshiper. Everybody is a worshiper. We were created As worshipers, everybody worships something or some things. It's not a question of whether or not you worship something. It's a question of what it is that you worship. And what the Bible tells us is that you and I were created to worship God. As the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul. I will replenish. Now, why why is This story is so amazing. It's because 
we have rebelled against God in our first parents. So that by nature, we are spiritually allergic to God. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that by nature, we are all God-haters. By nature, we wouldn't worship God if, if God was the last and the only thing on the face of the earth. What we worship is anything and everything other than God. Common counterfeit gods are things like money and possessions. Things like beauty and sexual allure. Things like power and control. Things like intellect and success. But here's the thing, and you know this. Those things never satisfy. They are like a mirage on a hot desert road making promises that disappear as you approach. More than that, these things enslave us. What do I mean? Listen to the words of David Foster Wallace, who, as far as I know, wasn't a believer, but who certainly understood the consequences of idolatry. He writes, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body in beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Here's the thing. We are all, by nature, idolaters. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin writes that man's nature is a perpetual idol factory. And yet, how does God respond to the fact that by nature we'd rather worship anything or everything other than him? What do you see in our passage? What you see in our passage is absolutely astounding. What you see in our passage is the glorious grace of God in the incarnation. What you see in our passage is that God in the person of Jesus takes the initiative. He steps into our world, as, or as John puts it in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Again, what is God's agenda? That we might know him, that we might love him, and that we might worship him. The idols of our hearts never satisfy us, but Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our idols enslave us. But if Jesus sets you free, you, are, you will be free indeed. Our idols lead to death, but whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. The Magi might have thought that they had come seeking the one who was born 
king of the Jews, but the fact is that it was really the king of the Jews who was seeking the Magi. God seeks worshipers. He was doing it then, and he is doing it right now. This is God's agenda. How should we respond? Well, obviously, it is to worship him. As the psalmist puts it over and over and over again, he says, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about worshiping the Lord on Sundays in this room. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What might this look like? Well, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's calling us to worship, to begin with worship, but he doesn't end there. He goes on. He says, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual, earth, <laughs> earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What Paul is saying here is the same thing that Jesus was saying when he was talking about lust in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus has given the sermon and he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look on a woman with, with lust in your heart, you have committed Adultery, And then he says something that's pretty mind-boggling. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right arm causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it away. What in the world is Jesus saying? Well, I don't think what Jesus is saying is you need to mutilate yourself. What I think Jesus is saying is that we need to deal ruthlessly with our sin. We need to deal ruthlessly with our idolatry. That's part of what it looks like to glorify God. It's to put to death our sin. But again, that's not all that Jesus says here because Paul goes on and he says, after worship the Lord, put to death your sin, he says, what? Put on Christ. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, what God is doing is he is making our hearts like his heart. God is actually making us more and more who we were created to be, which means that God is making us more and more human. And the heart of our humanity begins in worship, in worship of the living and the true God that transforms our everyday lives. But there's something else we need to see in our passage in our passage, Matthew lays out for us God's agenda. But he also tells us something about God's gospel. What does he tell us about God's gospel? Well, think about it like this. Who would you expect to be seeking this newborn king of the Jews? Who? Jews! 
<laughs> right? You would think it would be the Jews, the ones who had received the prophecies from of old. Many of you know that the Old Testament is chock full of all kinds of prophecies about a coming king, a coming Messiah. And according to verses 5 and 6, the chief priests and the scribes and the people know these prophecies. When, when, when Herod asked them, where is this, this, this Messiah, this king supposed to be? They say, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written in the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Yet who? Who is it that comes seeking this king? It's the Magi. Beloved, this is so, so profound. It is so very important. Because while we don't know a whole lot about the Magi, we do know this. The Magi are foreigners. They are Gentiles. They are outsiders. They are not the chosen people of God. They are pagans. They are this interesting blend of astrologer and astronomer. What I mean is that like modern day scientists, they study the stars. They study the heavenly bodies. But in addition to their studies of the heavens, they also predict the future like fortune tellers. And here's the thing. This was strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. There are a number of places in the Old Testament where astrologers are mocked by God. They are mocked by God and they are mocked by his people. So what does this mean? These are not the kind of people that you'd expect God to seek to be his worshipers, his worshipers. And yet, what do you see in our passage? God is seeking the very people you would never in a million years expect him to be seeking. These are the, and these are the same kinds of people who Jesus seeks out throughout his ministry. Mark 2, chapter, verse 17. What does Jesus say? He says, I came not to seek the righteous, but sinners. Or as he says to Zacchaeus in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to what? To seek and save the lost. God in the person of Jesus pursues outsiders. God in the person of Jesus pursues prostitutes and thieves and extortioners and the underbelly of society. God in the person of Jesus seeks people you would least expect. Beloved, if there's any question about God's goodness and his kindness and his patience and his grace and his love and his mercy, this passage is the answer. God seeks worshipers among, from among those whom you would least expect. God seeks worshipers who have nothing to give him except their brokenness, their guilt, and their shame. God seeks worshipers who have no hope except the mercy and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And what all this means is that God is seeking us. God is seeking you. He is, he is seeking me. He is, he is seeking all of us so that we might find our all in him. He's seeking us so that we might worship him. 
Now, most of us, we know this, right? And yet, let's be honest. Worship is hard. It's still hard. I mean, I'm sitting up here right before the service, and I'm, and, and I'm, I'm worried about all the details of the service. I'm, I'm going to be standing in the presence of Jesus, and I'm worried about you guys. It's crazy. Worship is hard. We, we, we struggle to worship God, or maybe we don't struggle to worship God. Maybe we just sort of show up and we go through the motions. Calvin is right. Our hearts, even the hearts of believers, really do continue to produce idols. What are we to do? What are we to do? Well, think about our passage. And think about the rest of Jesus' story. Matthew tells us that when the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. And when they saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here's the, here's the thing. It's a safe assumption that the Magi knew very little of what they were actually doing or who it was they were standing before. But you and I do. We know the rest of his story. That the tension that you see between King Herod and Jesus doesn't end with this story. It runs throughout the Gospels. And this tension, it comes to a climax some 30 plus years after the visiting of the Magi, where once again we hear Jesus described as the king of the Jews. But this time the words aren't words of adoration and praise. They are words of contempt and hatred. They are a mocking death sentence. These words, king of the Jews, like Jesus himself, were nailed to the cross above his head. As he hung there dying, he not only endured the contempt and the hatred of the crowds, but he also endured the wrath of his father, the wrath of God the Father that is due you and me because we would rather worship anything but him. Why would, why would Jesus do this? It's so that we could worship him in spirit and truth. You see, our worship is always a response to God's initiating love and grace. What you see on the cross is the greatest act of love that you will ever see. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that by nature we aren't friends of Jesus. We're his enemies. <laughs> it's crazy. Read Romans 5.10. While we were enemies of Jesus, God reconciled us to God through the death of his son. Oh, oh, friends, 
is as we see this, as we, as we taste this, as, as we taste and see the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, that we will respond in worship more and more, worshiping him in spirit and truth. This is why Paul prays what he prays for the believers in Ephesus and, in a sense, prays for us. Paul prays that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And if you're like me, you pray like that father who brought his son to Jesus in Luke chapter 9 to be healed. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And Paul goes on in Ephesians 3 to say this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What is Paul saying? He's saying, what he says in Philippians chapter 1, that God is going to complete the good work in you. He is, going to come, he is going to purify your heart. When you see Jesus face to face, you will worship him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He is our hope. Even as we gather together with mixed motives, distractions, with all we bring in this room. He is our hope in life and death. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that this call to worship is not something that we have to muster up in ourselves, but it's something that you're actually working in us by grace, through faith. Lord, you've put your spirit in us, this power is at work in us, cultivating the fruit of your spirit and waging war against the deeds of our flesh. Lord, thank you that our hope is not in our own efforts, but our hope is in you. And Lord, as we, as we come to your table this morning, I pray that you would once again meet us, that you would feed us, Lord, that 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 you would give us faith that we might know that you are as real and your promises are as real as this bread and this wine. Oh God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you came not for the righteous, but for sinners. We praise you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.